Some of you have asked how you can help us. While most of us would say, we want wine. <sighs> Italia Wine Podcast is a publicly funded, sponsor-driven enterprise that needs the moolah. You can donate through Patreon or GoFundMe by heading to italianwinepodcast.com. We would appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Italian Wine Podcast, a Wine to Wine Business Forum 2021 media partner, is proud to present a series of sessions highlighting the key themes and ideas from the two-day event held on October the 18th and 19th. 2021. This hybrid edition of the Business Forum was jam-packed with the most informed speakers discussing some of the hottest topics in the wine industry today. For more information, please visit winetowine.net and tune in every Thursday at 2pm Central European Time for more episodes recorded during this latest edition of Wine to Wine Business Forum. Buongiorno, good morning everybody. I am Dario Bergamini, the Regional Sales Manager of Etica Wines for Japan and Korea. For who is not familiar with Etica Wines, uh, we are uh, an importer of fine Italian wines in the United States. And in Asia Pacific, uh, we act uh, as a, a trading and marketing agency. Um, today, in this session, we are going to get a, a very precise insight on the Japanese wine market. As you can see, the title of this session is uh, Sophisticated Importers and Established Wine Writers and Stars Sommelier, How They Set the Wine Market Trends in Japan. So let me introduce the relator, my friend and neighbor of prefecture, uh, Rodi Ropna. He is based, I'm based in Kanagawa. He is based uh, uh, in, in the beautiful coastal town of uh, Hatami in Shizuoka Prefecture, a very famous touristic destination uh, not so far from Tokyo, very famous for the onsen or the hot springs, uh, which is probably the secret behind the beautiful skin condition of <laughs> 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 Mr. Rob, Rodney uh, has. Um, so, um, yeah, he's a wine writer focusing on the Japanese wine market. He currently writes about this topic for the Kante magazine and Meininger Wine Business International. In uh, his uh, first career, he was uh, with Christie's auction, auction House. The initial 10 years as a specialist of Chinese porcelain were followed by 10 years in the management roles, including managing director of Christie's Japan. So, let's give the word to Roddy. Hello, and uh, thank you very much, Dario. Nice to see you again. And uh, thank you very much for letting me talk about uh, Japan and the wine market here. So uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, in a minute, just uh, press onto the uh, slideshow. And I hope that you can see that. Can you see that, Dario? Yeah. Okay, okay. So what I wanted to do first was to talk about uh, why Japan, um, what I noticed over the last maybe 15 years, is that Japan slowly got sort of pushed into the background when people think about the, uh, the markets in Asia. But the reality is that uh, Japan is actually an economic powerhouse. 
people often forget that it's the third largest economy in the world, third after America and China. It's also the second largest wine market in Asia. And uh, in a world context, it's the sixth largest wine importer worldwide by value. Um, some of these figures will undoubtedly have changed over the last year. Um, but I think when we get back to COVID, uh, post-COVID, uh, this, this figure will, will hold up. So the sixth largest wine importer worldwide. It's also home to 30 million regular wine consumers. That's a figure uh, presented by Wine Intelligence. And they, they quote, I think it's people who are drinking wine uh, once a month. So those kind of figures are probably quite easy to come across and probably quite well known to uh, many of the listeners and many of the, the people watching this, uh, this presentation. But what many people may not know is that Japan is also um, a very popular tourist destination. So it uh, has 30, had 32 million tourists a year in the run-up to, uh, well, the Olympics, just before the Olympics, uh, the original Olympics of 2020. So many of those tourists are actually what I would call gourmet tourists. They're coming here for the scenery, they're coming here for the sights, but they're coming here to eat and drink. So if as a wine winery or wine producer, you can get your wines into a retail uh, outlet or you can get them into a restaurant where they, those consumers are eating and drinking, really you can think of as Japan as a, a kind of shop window for the rest of Asia. So those are some of the reasons why I think that Japan is extremely relevant now. And any winery that is thinking about uh, which export markets to concentrate on, they would do uh, very well to, to, to take another look at uh, the Japanese market. So this is just a quick overview of what I'm going to talk about. So I've got uh, 11 or 12 slides. I'm going to give a, a quick overview of the nature of the market here. Talk about some uh, something called the economic partnership agreements, just briefly. And then I run through um, uh, three or four trends, uh, sparkling wine, low intervention, organic wines, uh, less is more, uh, written less is more uh, twice, sorry. Uh, influent, and then talk about some of the influential uh, people who have influence over the market, which are the importers, the wine writers, and the sommeliers that were mentioned in the title. And then just in case, unless you think I'm giving too a uh, glowing uh, uh, report of the market here, we do a reality check and perhaps um, look at some, some of the real situation on the ground. Um, what I would say is that if there's any questions that come up uh, during the talk, uh, please feel free to interrupt. So if we go to the uh, first step, uh, we talk about uh, established market. So when people th think about uh, Asia, they often think about it as a sort of one big uh, emerging market. I mean, the fact is that Japan is actually a very established market. If you look at media, which is really like a high-end grocer, um, it's with, with a number of stores throughout Japan. They've been importing French wines, including, including Chateau Lafitte, uh, since the 19th century. If you take Takashi Mayo, uh, which is a high-end department store, they've been importing Domaine Loire since 1972, so nearly 50 years. Uh, from an Italian perspective, if you take uh, uh, Foodliner, which is a food and wine importer, they've been working with and importing Pirapan since the 1980s. So all of that is to say that Japan is not really an emerging market. 
um, it's actually an established market and you could think of it as a, as a mature market. The other thing that I think is quite interesting about the market here is that it's a quite a, a stable market and uh, with relatively low political risk. I mentioned that because perhaps 10, 15 years ago, that wouldn't really have been a, a, a point worth making. But if you think over the last six or seven years, how uh, America has imposed tariffs on European wines, how China has uh, imposed anti-dumping uh, duties on Australian wine. And we've had that whole uh, Brexit fiasco. I can call it fiasco because I'm English. So, uh, uh, so that has created a lot of political risk uh, in, in the market and made it more difficult, I think, for wineries to plan where they should want to do their exports. But you really don't get that kind of political risk in Japan, which is very stable, has a very stable democratic government. Um, it's about to have an election at the end of this month, and the same party will no doubt be voted back into power that has been in power for most of the last 55 years. But there's an actually sort of economic reason behind uh, why they want to keep uh, stability with their trading partners is because uh, Japan has a population of 127 million people, but the population is shrinking. So Japan needs to find more markets to export, and it's very unlikely that they're going to start a trade war with any of the wine producing countries around the world. So evidence of that are these uh, economic partnership agreements, EPAs. These are agreements with countries uh, that eliminate or reduce import duties on wine. So if this started with Chile in 2007, they've been signed with Australia, with the EU, with New Zealand, and uh, most recently with the USA. In truth, what it does is it reduces import duties and that has most, most impact on the lower value wines. So that has helped Chile to become the number one importing country by, by volume, overtaking France. It's less impact on the, uh, on the higher value wines. But I, I think that actually it's, it's a statement of intent that Japan is looking toward, towards having stable relations with its trading partners. And that, I think, to many people, perhaps the stability uh, in a market of this size may outweigh the benefits or the perceived benefits of perhaps some more dynamic markets, but which are perhaps less stable. So now if we look at some of the uh, trends that are emerging uh, in, in, in Japan. So Japan, uh, we can think of as a major player for sparkling wine. Um, I suppose the best example of that would be uh, champagne. So Japan is the third largest export market worldwide by both value and volume after the USA and after the UK. And what producers of uh, champagne particularly like about this market is that the Japanese really have an appreciation for quality and they are going after prestige cuvées as well as grower champagnes. So they're not afraid to pay uh, top dollar for the best wines. And that makes it a very attractive market for, for those wanting to export here. There is a sort of interesting aside that the very high-end uh, champagnes, such as we talk about uh, Krug, Perrier, Jouet, um, amongst others, uh, those do very well at, uh, in nightclubs. 
So uh, where, where a lot of the entertaining is done and uh, their ex uh, businesses have expense accounts. So those probably have suffered a bit over the last uh, 18 months. But on the other side, the grower champagnes have been sold mostly in, in uh, restaurants and those have to, and also to private private clients and those have held up sales of those uh, grower champagnes have held up very strongly over the last year um, it's worth noting in the italian context that uh with franciacorta that japan is also a very strong market for uh, franciacorta it it varies it vies with um switzerland to be the first or second strongest uh, or largest export market for franciacorta and has done so for a number of years now um, conversely, and what is quite interesting is that uh, Japan is not a major market for Prosecco. So if you think about other big markets around the world uh, that uh, appreciate sparkling white, you've got, uh, let's say, the UK and the USA. Um, Japan is kind of bucking that trend. So uh, Japan, yes, they like sparkling wine, but it's not all sparkling wines that they like. But certainly if you're a sparkling wine producer, uh, I would definitely be looking at, at Japan. I think that the market has probably suffered over the last 18 months, but I imagine that it's going to bounce back. And I don't think this is a trade, uh, a trend that is going to disappear suddenly. Um, if we look at another trend that is quite pervasive, uh, we can talk about uh, low intervention wines. Um, uh, well, I, I put these two together, low intervention and organic wines. I'll say a bit about them, them separately, but I'm calling them low intervention wines, but maybe it, it, some people talk about uh, natural wines. Um, first thing to say is that I don't think that the terms are necessarily clearly, clearly understood by consumers. But uh, on the other hand, I would say that this is definitely a trend, if not a phenomenon. It's not something that is a passing trend either. To give you some examples, so Shonzui, which is a natural wine bar in Tokyo, it opened in 1993, so that's uh, nearly 30 years ago. Uh, Kenichi Hohashi, who's a master of wine, wrote a book, uh, Van Naturel, uh, which was published in 2004, which was a very critical look uh, in, in Japanese, a very critical look at uh, the natural wine market. And that was one of the um, impetuses to, to kickstart the market, which until that point had been actually been uh, just bubbling along, but not, not so strong. Another sort of impetus for the market was uh, importers such as Racine, they're not the only importer of these low intervention wines, but they place great emphasis on correct storage of wine, the shipping of wines from Europe, and then the correct storage uh, and uh, distribution of wines in Japan to the extent that they would refuse to sell wines to uh, retailers or restaurants that didn't have correct storage facilities. I mean, everyone, anyone who's been to Japan in the summer knows that it's incredibly hot here, incredibly humid. And these kind of low intervention wines, if they are not, if they're not uh, stored correctly, um, have a tendency to, to go off uh, very quickly. So I think that this huge emphasis on storage and the correct storage and shipping of the wines has been uh, one of the key factors in, in uh, supporting the trend. And it, we can now say that it's really almost not a trend anymore. It's, it's really established. So I would say natural wines, low intervention wines, uh, they're niche, but they're also highly visible. 
So um, you will see natural wines, low intervention wines on uh, Michelin star restaurant wine lists. You'll see them in wine bars. You'll see them in shops. You'll see them. It's not only in Tokyo. It's uh, not only in all the big cities. Uh, I'm here, uh, you mentioned Dario, in, in Atami. We're a tiny little town, maybe 30,000 people. But there is one lady uh, who's a leading uh, distributor of uh, natural wines in the village next door, working from a refrigerated container. Um, so it's it's something that you can see throughout the country. And it's, um, I say, it's, it's more than a trend now. It's, it's really an, an established and mainstream. I think the other thing that is interesting is that organic wines are also becoming increasingly popular. Um, or perhaps we should say organically grown wines made from organically grown grapes. And that has also been reported across the board uh, in supermarkets and across all retailers. There's a growing trend, uh, growing interest and a growing enthusiasm for organic wines. Um, the next trend I thought about is um, Less is more. I, I think this is probably not something that is especially specific to um, to Japan, but certainly over the last 10 or 15 years, um, as has been seen in other parts of the world, there is a, a sort of an, an interest in wines with lower alcohol, wines that are less heavily oaked, wines that are less extracted. You could think of them as more food-friendly wines. I mean, it's, Japanese do not tend to drink wine on its own, perhaps in the way that uh, maybe uh, people in Europe might go home at the end of the day and open a bottle of wine and have a drink before dinner. Uh, certainly in England, that would happen. Um, but in Japan, people don't. People tend to drink wine with food. And so this emphasis on wines with low alcohol, less heavily oaked, uh, less extracted, it really fits in, I think, with what one might think of the stereotypical sort of uh, Japanese taste, if you will. And then there's something which might seem a little bit strange to, to include in trends, but I think it's something that actually uh, uh, is, is quite relevant for wineries. It's uh, wine sets. They're, they're sold as wine sets that in English we might also call them mixed cases. So these are sets, uh, these are selections made by the retailer based on the region, the style, the variety, or the producer. It can be, can be anything that they, they choose. Um, these are now standard with every kind of retailer. I, I probably get a dozen emails a day from uh, everything from supermarkets through to high-end retailers. Um, and everybody is promoting sets. So I think there's two points here. One is that there's a parallel to wine pairing menus that we see uh, in restaurants everywhere in Japan. So when you go to a restaurant, you actually don't have to open a wine list and go through and look for your favorite wine. The wine, uh, the sommelier uh, has, has done all the work for you. So you have a different class of wine with every dish uh, if, if, it's, if it's a wine-focused restaurant. Basically, the wine sets take the strain or the stress or the hassle out of choosing wine which is really quite convenient. Actually, if, if, you're not that in, if you're not that engaged with wine, it's actually quite a, a relief to be offered sets because if you trust the retailer, um, they've done all the hard work for, for you. If you don't like their selection, you probably won't go back to them. So they work very hard to make sure that these sets uh, are, are, are compiled with high quality wines. So I think that for wineries, perhaps that's part of the discussion they can have with importers is, uh, the mix of wines that they're sending, or perhaps how they can adjust their packaging 
um, to to take part in this trend, which is now, as I say, is is everywhere from supermarkets to the highest end retailers. So that was just some of the trends that are going that are taking place. Uh, maybe it's it's useful now to think about the importers. Um, so uh, I've mentioned here, okay, importers experienced and well-established. I think part of the point that I was trying to make is, okay, well, first of all, there's, there's about 250 well-established, uh, well-known, uh, recognized uh, importers here. What I was trying to do is, is having worked in uh, um, other countries, what I saw was a trend that people who have successful businesses, they travel overseas, they enjoy wine, they come back and they think, oh, I think I'll start a, a wine importing business. That was very common in uh, in Hong Kong about 10 years ago. So uh, you don't really see that kind of phenomenon in, in, in Japan. These people are dedicated, uh, well-established and devoted to importing wine. Um, along with those well-established is now a new generation of micro-importers. So if there's anyone looking at this presentation and thinking, gosh, I, I haven't got an importer yet, they're not so easy to find, but there are a whole new set of importers that have come up um, that are well worth looking out. Are you enjoying this podcast? There is so much more high-quality wine content available from Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Check out our new wine study maps, our books on Italian wine, including Italian Wine Unplugged, The Jumbo Shrimp Guide to Italian Wine, Sangiovese Lambrusco and Other Stories, and much, much more on our website, mamajumboshrimp.com. Now back to the show. And the other thing that they do is uh, every well, 70% of the wine consumed in Japan is imported. 30% is made domestically. 70% is imported. So every bottle of wine that is imported into Japan needs to have a back label showing the name of the importer. And what this does is it gives the importers actually a very high visibility. Um, I think of comparing it to, I've just been in England for two months, where I bought wine based on whether I knew the winery or whether I, I trusted the retailer. I didn't give a second thought to who had imported the wine. But in Japan, actually, the importers have a sort of status that is equivalent to the retailer. And in some cases, it's almost as, as, as prestigious as the, as the winery itself. So on the right, you see this rather bad quality slide, I'm afraid, that I took from a website of a, a, an online retailer. And he actually allows buyers to search for wines by the, by the importer. So if you like the wines of, let's say, Finesse, who specializes in Burgundy, you can just put in Finesse and all, his, all their wines will come up. Or if you like the wines of uh, small Italian, Evino, they specialize in small Italian wineries. Uh, you could search for them. Um, so I thought that's quite an interesting idea. But what it does is it also when you go to a, a, a retailer and you have a wall of wine in front of you, if you're not quite sure whether you like that wine or might like that wine, you can turn the bottle around. You can see the name of the, the importer. And it acts as almost like a, a, a seal of approval or a seal of guarantee. And uh, I often do that. 
Um, I happen to like the wines of Avino, I happen to like the wines of Racine and Finesse. So if I see their, their labels on the back and I don't know the wine, I'm more than happy to give that wine a shot because I like the other wines in the portfolio uh, of these importers. So that's just a word about the, the importers. Um, the other group that I think are quite interesting uh, uh, are wine writers. And again, we could perhaps think of this in, um, in contrast to, to other regions or other countries. I mean, the wine writers here, there is nobody, I should start by saying, there's nobody with the influence of, let's say, Robert Parker or even Genesis Robinson. But these wine writers are knowledgeable, uh, they are dedicated, and um, they, this is what they do. They're, they're not bloggers, they're not, um, they're not social media influences, and they're, they're not celebrities. Uh, it's quite interesting to, to compare with a very good talk yesterday that was given by Fong Yi Walker in China. And she said that basically some of the online uh, influencers, if you've got one from, uh, from a couple of big cities, I think she mentioned Chongqing and Shenzhen, but if you had one influencer from each of those big cities, you could sell the entire annual output of a medium-sized winery. Well, there's nobody in Japan with that kind of influence and certainly no social media influencer. But what you have is these, these wine writers and uh, Mr. Yamamoto is, is a good example of that. He had a previous career as a, as a journalist working for one of the most prestigious newspapers. And when he retired in 2014, he set up um, something called Wine Report. And he reports daily on stories of interest from around the world and on his tastings. And his is the only subscription-based wine website in Japan. And I think he has about 10,000 uh, readers uh, alone. So he's not the only one, but he's perhaps a person with the most influence, uh, as shown by the fact that he has a subscription-based website. And so I think a number of times I've been asked to, when I'm researching for doing some reports for regions, people say, oh, who are the social media people that we need to contact? Uh, I don't think you need to contact anyone uh, for, for social media influence in Japan. What you need to do is to contact uh, or try and invite to your tastings or try and invite to your region um, wine writers who are respected for their knowledge and for the detail and for their dedication. Uh, the other group of people that I think worth mentioning are sommeliers. So there is an umbrella organization called the uh, Japan Sommelier Association. They have a registered membership of 14,500 sommeliers, which, of which I think about half of those are working full time. Uh, what's interesting is that, I mean, they really do play a key role, sommeliers. You can imagine that a lot of Japanese don't speak English, they don't, don't read English, let alone French or Italian or Spanish. So, and they don't have wide uh, or detailed wine knowledge. They are very happy to ask the advice and to take the advice of sommeliers. So the sommeliers play a, play a really key role in, in selling wine. Um, and I think that up to now, if you're lucky enough to go to any of the, the really established Michelin-starred foreign uh, restaurants, French, Italian, Spanish restaurants uh, in Japan, you will find very senior um, sommeliers with a lot of experience, you know, 20, 30, 40 years experience, many of whom have been working in those restaurants for 20 or 30 years, and they have immaculate wine lists. But you can say that those wine lists are very traditional with a heavy focus on uh, 
the big houses of Champagne, uh, Bordeaux, etc. Those those sort of wines. But what I noticed over the last five years, we're starting to see a new generation of sommelier that is perhaps a, a little more inclusive, a little more um, uh, forward-looking. And uh, the example I've given here, and again, it's just one person, um, but this is Mr. Oyama, who works for, uh, well, he's just joined uh, a new restaurant in Kyoto, which is a modern Spanish restaurant called Koke, K-O-K-E. And within a year, uh, the Fine Wine magazine has uh, nominated his as the best uh, short wine list in Asia, um, had to be put forward for the, for the final comp worldwide competition. But it's pretty impressive with only six months, less than six months, I think, working there, that he's put together such a, a, a successful wine list. And I think it's also interesting. It's a modern Spanish restaurant. Uh, they only have two wines from Rioja. But what they have is they have much stronger uh, emphasis on the modern uh, wine producers from Spain, such as Raul Perez and uh, Jimenez Landi, uh, Commando G. Uh, they also have, uh, I think they have 40, 40 growers champagnes, no, none of the big houses, only growers champagnes. And for the Spanish sparkling, sparkling wines, are, um, I think three out of four or two out of three are pet naps. So uh, what you can see is, is, is perhaps just a, a slightly modern approach uh, to, to creating these wine lists um, that I think makes it actually uh, quite exciting. And I, I, what I would say is you are not probably going to find um, sommeliers with, uh, with tattoos and ponytails, but uh, very hardworking professionals. I'm not saying that guys with ponytails and uh, tattoos are not, uh, not hardworking, but they're still very traditional. They look very traditional, but they've got a very modern approach in, in the wines that they um, at the, the wines that they select, and I think that's very encouraging for the the future of of, of wine wine sales in Japan. So, unless I give a too glowing report about uh, Japan, maybe we need to think about uh, some of the negatives or some of the the reality of the situation here. Uh, Japan still has very low per capita consumption. It peaked in about 2015 or 2016, having risen quite steadily from um, about 2008. So per capita cons consumption is still only about three liters per annum. Um, and I think in Italy, the figure is 39 liters, or 2018, it was, 2000, uh, it was uh, 39 liters per annum. So Japan has stopped at about three liters and is just moving sideways. Um, I, it's too early to say whether that figure will increase. If you want to take a positive view, there's plenty of room for growth. But at the moment, the figure has, um, is static over the last three or four years, um, four or five years, actually. The other, next problem is that there's an aging population. And that's um, a problem in the sense that the wealthier demographic uh, is are the, are the older population. And I think they said that 25% of the population here now is over 65. So the people with money, uh, actually, the amount they're drinking is actually uh, reducing. And it's not clear at this stage whether there's a new generation of, of young wine drinkers coming into the market to, to take over from them. So that's another thing that we have to bear in mind. And the last thing I want to say is that uh, over the last 30 years, there's really been this, uh, Japan's been 
plagued by the problem of deflation or low inflation. This week, I saw a figure that says that uh, salaries have only increased by 4%, 4% in the last 30 years. The knock-on effect for that is that prices have not risen in the last 30 years. You can think of this in a, in a very positive way if you're a consumer. It doesn't matter whether you're going by taxi or having dinner at a restaurant. What we're not seeing is any increase in prices over the last 30 years. The prices have remained the same. Um, the problem is that it means that the importers can't increase their prices, distributors can't increase their, increase their prices, and the restaurants can't increase their prices, which means that the wineries can't increase their prices. So I think that wineries need to bear that in mind when they come to this market, that they not, will not be able to, to build in higher margins or, or increase in prices every year. The reason I put the dot, dot, dot there is that actually just two days ago, I, I, I read something that Japan has, uh, because of the, the, the low value of the yen and increasing um, commodity prices, that inflation is starting to take off. So that's maybe another question mark uh, arising from COVID. We don't know whether inflation will be coming back, but for the last 30 years, uh, there has not been inflation in this country. So just to round, uh, to finish off, so the takeaways from this is that, I would say that this is a large, sophisticated and mature market. You've got a huge amount of conservative consumers um, who are open to new regions and new styles if supported by credible influencers, such as those importers, wine writers and sommeliers. You've also got this amazing shop window for other Asian countries. Um, think trends to think about uh, sparkling wines, low intervention wines, natural organic wines, uh, and wines with lower alcohol, less influence, and wine sets. So that's the end of my presentation. Um, so thank you very much. I stop sharing now. Um, now to the Q&A section. Okay. And uh, I've noticed we got a couple of questions regarding the e-commerce. <clears throat> so yes. the first one is from Joseph Timkowski. Mm. He's wondering about e-commerce share in the wine market. And also, are the main decision, uh, how are the main decision make, uh, which are the main decision making factors when people buy wine online in Japan? How important are taste preferences in that? Okay. I think to the first, to the first part of the question, um, there's three major platforms for uh, wine retail. So you've got uh, these wine, mar the marketplaces. So you've got um, uh, Amazon, Rakuten and Yahoo Japan. So uh, Yahoo still exists in, in, in Japan. Uh, yeah, Yahoo Japan, uh, you've got Amazon, which everybody will know about, but you've got homegrown Rakuten, which is basically a, a, a Japanese uh, website. It builds itself more as a bazaar. So if you if you go and look at Rakuten, um, it, less, it looks less like a sort of or, less organized than Amazon, um, but it's actually extremely popular. Um, I have tried to get the figures for wine sales from each of these uh, organizations, but they don't divulge their wine their wine sales figures. But each of them has their own 
positives and negatives. But those are probably the three the three main wine markets that you would you would see. And what was quite interesting was that you think that for what is apparently a technologically very advanced country, um, online wine sales were not such a big thing before COVID. So there's been a huge. Uh, is quite. This is quite uh, odd because uh, there, there already was a, a very good infrastructure of uh, delivery services, which is probably the best in the world. So, and I, I think that what we're seeing is that some some retailers are really embracing it. I, I mean, I interviewed some people for an article on on about online retailing. Some like uh, uh, Enoteca. Has yeah. got a very advanced system, and they're they're going beyond uh, laptops to to mobile retailing, mm -hmm. and that has really driving their sales. And obviously, there are, there's a generation of people who love that. And again, if we listen to the talk yesterday uh, about China, the Chinese consumers would totally understand that. But you also have to think, and Dario, you you would know this that um, many people in Japan still prefer to use cash. So, yeah, true. so I mean, it's changing, I mean, slowly changing. It's but. slowly changing, but you know, you and when you go to a restaurant, you don't necessarily know whether they're going to accept a credit card. Or, yeah, um, you don't know how much the bill is going to be, but you don't know also whether they're going to take a credit card. And there are other things that people will send products to you and then you pay for them, which is almost unheard of in any other country. But they, so so online retailing uh, has fallen behind. So I just said so. So that's to answer the first part of the question. Um, the second part was um, what, what drives. The yeah, it was uh, about the, like how, how much it is the share of the e-commerce and. Uh... Oh, I just go to the share. I mean, I think it, there's no figures. Okay, I mean, okay. the best I could do was I, I and I don't have them at the top of my head. I'm afraid, but there were figures which were relatively small for quite well-known um, supermarkets like Aeon, which are like 2% of their sales, which is the biggest mm -hmm. supermarket chain here. And ranging up to, uh, I think, Enoteca, which I, I, I don't want to give the wrong figure, but it was, it was, you know, more than 20% of their, of their retail. Yeah, definitely. At least 30 even, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it was 30, 30% was, mm -hmm. was of their retail figures. So it varies by organization. I just say that because Aeon is the biggest supermarket chain. But they have not really pursued, not yet, uh, or, or not six months ago, they had not pursued uh, e-commerce. E e sure. And then, what were the, what are the the main decision-making factors when people buy online? Yeah. That's something. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I think that okay. So if, if we, as I said, I the focus of this presentation was less for the, the people who are buying at supermarkets, and then I think it's a question of price. Yeah. And, the, 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 if you go to a supermarket or convenience store, most of the wines that you will see are Chilean. And I don't think it's necessarily because Japanese adore cheap Chilean wine. I think mm. it's because it's good value. And yeah. the Chileans are able to, to provide a, a, a very high level of quality at a certain price because they have excellent distribution. But um, if you're talking about the higher, I think there's, there's too many factors probably to to pick yeah. out one or two. I mean, Japanese consumers are incredibly knowledgeable when they're engaged. Even they have the word like it's otaku, it's like geeky, you know, and yeah. they're almost, they're proud about that in the same way that maybe people in Europe. Wine otaku, know. yes. Yeah, they're, they're, they're geeks about this. The more information that wineries can provide, the more imp information that you can give uh, for an engaged consumer, the better. So some of the wine websites- Yeah, not to forget the, 
the visual impact because yeah. uh, label is a is a very important thing in, in all Asian markets, but especially in Japan, where the attention to the details and uh, every kind of like imperfection is not is not forgiven. Yes. For example, <laughs> it's not acceptable. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So it's still uh, about the e-commerce. Um, yeah, uh, uh, is it a popular sales channel? Yes, of course, we have talked about that. And uh, can uh, e-tailers uh, buy direct from wineries or do they still need an importer? So I, I know one example, because I interviewed them, uh, 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 they're called Tuscany. They're quite quite well-known uh, yep. online retailer. And I thought it's very interesting that they, they do import, import their wines directly. Um, yeah, they they cannot like the consumer cannot buy directly from from the winery, but they yeah. still need an importer. But yeah, uh, like big uh, uh, e-commerce provider like Tuscany, uh, they act also as importer sometimes. And like you mentioned, Enoteca Japan, for example, with yeah. Yeah, exactly. example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So another question. Uh, do you think that wines will be able, Italian wines will be able to enter the channel of Japanese traditional cuisine and restaurants? We, we believe there is a great feeling between Italian wines and Japanese traditional food. Yeah, yeah, I think that this is, this is almost like the last frontier for people because, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's 8,000 Italian restaurants, but someone said, well... Yeah, it's massive. You, it's it's incredible. 2,000 restaurants you, I think, yeah. So there's... The, the the challenge for not only Italian wines is to break into the Japanese restaurants. But I, I tell you, the, the, the sushi restaurant that I go to uh, here occasionally when I'm feeling I can afford it, it's, it seats only five people. Yeah. And they have no room for a wine fridge and they have no knowledge about wine and they don't have the time to learn about it. So I'm going to go back and try and persuade them. But they're, they're kind of willing, but they don't know how to serve a glass of wine. You know, most of the consumers are not going to buy bottles. Yeah, of wine. Education, education. They need of a, some kind of education to serve the wine in those kind of uh, restaurants, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But you, they also you need to provide the whole package. It's not it's not only about teaching about wine. It's about how to store the wine, how to open the bottle, which glasses yeah. to use, which temperature to serve the wine, how to store the wine once the bottle is open. There, there's so many things that people don't know about yet. If that can be done. And there are some restaurants that are doing it. Uh, it would be very interesting, and the market would grow dramatically. Yeah, I, I personally recently um, went to an izakaya, uh, a very high-end izakaya, where Japanese uh, food is mainly served. And uh, I, I was, I had pleasure to find even some Italian fine wines in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's definitely uh, a new frontier for Italian wine. Um, yes, then um, getting back to um, to the perspective of Italian wine also, and it's something that you already mentioned in your in your uh, in your presentation, um, probably. Uh, can you just give an, an example of a wine brand or category of Italian wine that had a successful strategical approach uh, to the Japanese market? And on the contrary, where do you think that there is still a lot of work to be done like probably you already mentioned something talking about the sparkling wines 
Yeah, yeah. I think I mean the the, the example that I would like to use is because it's a, it's a great example of a success story is, is French Ricotta, yeah, which has been here for so long. I mean they've been importing the wines for thirty or forty years. Um, they had a very clear focus, I think, to 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 get themselves into Italian restaurants at the beginning, and then visiting regularly, inviting the sommeliers, inviting retailers over to French Quarter, but then in the, what they've done the last 10 or 15 years are two very interesting things, I think. One is they've, they've opened an office, and I noticed this with a lot of successful regions have done this, so it's not only Franciacorta, but you have uh, Champagne, Bordeaux, uh, California, yep. just to name a few. They have representatives in Japan helping to support uh, with promotional educational activities. And in the case of Franciacorta, what they do, I think it's just actually maybe just a PR office, but that PR office makes sure that they that uh, that French quarters is positioned in the best light. So you see these glorious images of, of, of you know, uh, French quarters being, being, being served in glamorous settings, yeah. uh, traveling to Italy. Yeah, it's linked to the Italian way of life, of it's the fashion. And, yeah. Italian way, way of life. And the, the other thing that they've done in the last couple of years is they opened the French quarter bar yeah, in a, department in a very high-end uh, yeah. high, yeah, high department store in the center of Tokyo. So if you're walking around shopping for Italian clothes, you come across a French quarter bar, and it's it's there. It's, it's helping to position the brand in the right place. So I think that the French quarters had had put a lot of thought into this yeah. and, and executed some very good strategies. I, I, I'm not going to be too, too cruel about Prosecco, but at the moment, I... I one doesn't get an impression that we know what Prosecco is trying to achieve in Japan. In, in maybe in England, we, we know what it's, it has an image, but in, in Japan, it doesn't seem to sort of have a focus. And we, I think the consumers, why, why would they buy Prosecco rather than buying, I don't know, Carver? Uh, let's say. So. Yeah, um, as you said, there is a fascination for uh, for traditional uh, sparkling method in Japan. And one other thing that must be kept in into consideration when talking about the not so successful prosecco case in Japan is probably uh, that Japan is a huge market for beer. Yeah, and. Uh, so it's a cultural thing also maybe right there's some a lot of work to be done probably to link again in this case the the prosecco to the italian way of life of the aperitivo and and everything right yeah i think that there's potential it just needs a bit a bit more focus to 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 yeah definitely there is a lot of potential i believe that in the next years like for example prosecco rosé it's starting to have a good success in Japan. Uh, okay. I have uh, examples um, because it's a novelty, it's a new thing, probably. Yeah. yeah. And Japanese people like these new things. And yes, this could be yeah. the way. So. Yeah, yeah. Maybe with Sakura, you know that. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Roddy. I think no, we are at the end of our session. Uh, very interesting as always. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, nice hopefully see you in a time soon for Aonsen. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you again. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Roddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. 
Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production and publication costs. Until next time, cheat cheat.